started uh, The Way of Kings, which is like high fantasy that so far fucking kicks a ton of ass. Is it like a like like contemporary or is it like older fantasy? Or? I think it's from like late nineties. Uh, I know it's yeah, that's fairly Samson, recent, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's uh the Stormlight series. Yeah, that's like the night like because he's still writing those. There's so many of them, but yeah, that's contemporary high fantasy, like around the same time almost of George Game R. of Thrones. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's is it kind of accessible or is it pretty like thick it's girth, girthy the first thick, one's pretty thick but, but accessible yeah that's it's literally also... that's what someone wrote in my yearbook um was yeah. that I was thick. <laughs> thick and accessible mm-hmm. that's how i'd like to describe my body yeah. <laughs> all right uh the book is called there are no children here uh, there Jason. are no children here it's about I don't know if it's Cabrini Green specifically, but it's about those projects, and it's really, really well written and just fucking devastating. Uh, yeah, I mean that's I I'm so into that because it's it's seeing the systemic um, way that all of these things happen. Like I feel like everyone is so quick to judge someone who may be like uh, houseless and addicted to some form of substance, and will like. Mm-hmm. think something about that in a shitty way without looking upstream and seeing how that happened. Cause there's no compassion left in this society that we've built for ourselves. But I, I feel like that with like Cabrini green and any of these like projects, like uh, I think it's wild that currently our United States postal service is under attack from defunding and, and kind of manipulation in so many ways, but there are a lot of, a lot of parts of the United States that aren't accessible by the u.s postal service including a lot of like no usps is the only place for a lot of uh for a lot of the u.s just want to clarify oh oh yeah Uh, yeah like ups and fedex don't go to a lot of places only the postal service does like when it comes to like rural sections they're literally like zoned into where they should be and stuff but when it comes to like some like super wild places like there's there's parts of like north carolina that are deeply like they'll have a central post office but maybe not everyone gets the post it's a p.o box and other things like Mm -hmm. that it's just not an expectation of like the mail carrier going through some parts of a a major city that you know does struggle with you know crime and other other aspects and stuff so the the idea too that you're restricting people to that which you're restricting you know business too you know it's Mm -hmm. how do you have a good economy if there's a bunch of small businesses that rely on the postal service to get their things out the the whole thing is kind of weird it's fucked uh sort of insidious you could say yeah insidious too let's talk about it it's insidious too you know right Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. right all right yep we see ya can you get Welcome to Vulgar Auteurs, where we're discussing the films of James Wan. Uh, this week we're talking Insidious Chapter 2. Mm-hmm. and Specifically Chapter 2, because it is another chapter in this family saga that wrapped up okay in the last one and wasn't necessary this time. 
Yeah, I they said Juan and Lee Wanell, the uh, screenwriter and his frequent collaborator, said that they explicitly called it Chapter 2 because they wanted it to feel not as much a sequel as give the understanding that it's a direct continuation of the first film. Um, I think it, it's also part of that horror genre thing of like Friday the 13th part two, like mm-hmm. where it is a continued story that it, it seems really But they, they thought part or other words wouldn't convey the same idea that it's directly after. Like, isn't Friday the 13th part two like a year later? Uh... I can't remember. I think it's like right after the climax of the first one. And then he goes into hiding or he, I mean, spoilers, Jason Voorhees is not in the original Friday the 13th. Sorry. Um, but I think it like recaps the first movie and it's like, yeah, I think you're right. Like a couple years later than randomly Jason, mm-hmm. is now this burlap sack wearing guy chasing people with axes. Anyways. Uh, so the 13th from 2009, but that's a different one. Uh, that's yeah. That's Never actually uh, Platinum Dunes. Michael Bay represent. Uh-huh. Oh. Anyway, Paco, you were saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this film opens right as the last one, or no, before it goes to how the last one ends, we have an extended scene of young Josh uh, being hypnotized to forget about uh, the ghosts, so that the lady can't follow him. And yeah, it's the like it starts in 1986, so you're mm-hmm. immediately introduced to this sort of prequel thing with Elise, who's played by Lynn Shay. I- am I crazy? Like, did they overdub like her voice on top? Because I kept I kept goofing with my stereo because the voice and the mouth didn't match, and then that actor did sound like Lynn Shay. Like, it was super weird. Did you guys? I didn't that notice too? that, but it's possible it was um, driving me crazy <laughs> but it's it's like it's this is a quasi sequel prequel thing because it introduces this time travely aspect to it it's very strange huh, well it's really it seems like a flashback at first um it's not clear yeah, right true. away that there's going to be a time travel aspect uh but the there hypnotizing him to sort of protect him and out of the blue he says like oh it's over there and a door opens and that's kind of the gist of what's important about this opening scene and then we get a uh interrogation (laughs) yeah um there's a long scene with a police officer talking to rose byrne about what had uh, happened in the last movie. It's kind of incredible. I checked the timer. The first 20 minutes of this movie are recap of the previous movie. Yeah. And in like the laziest way possible, like it's, it's like cringeworthy expository dialogue where it's like, they're, mm-hmm. they're more like winks. Like, don't you remember what happened last time? And no, we, we can't move out of like, let's move. No, we can't move out of the house. Do you remember what happened last time? Like there's so uh, many just <laughs> stupid moments that are just cringeworthy in this, um, the, in this scene. Uh, the cop says, I'm not interested in ghosts. I'm interested in the humans who create them. Yeah. Uh, which is 
some great writing that that also (laughs) explains everything about this movie like that is the uh you know that's the theme of this movie is everything that we kind of dug i mean speaking for me everything that i loved about the first movie of them not explaining this you know the ghosts that you see like shrouding everything in kind of this weird mystery um is now like they're explaining every kind of specter that you see and the origin of this uh, this um, bride in black character that was introduced in the first one, and it, it now over explains everything in a way that's like, oh, this is for the people that may have not watched the first movie. So this is us explaining everything. So just in case to catch those, or this is also you know this was released three years after mm-hmm. um, the original one to kind of oh maybe it's been a while since you saw the the first one. It's it's done in this just strange way that doesn't necessarily feel like a chapter two part as much as it's like this was clearly shot later that maybe they didn't have a detailed plan when they wrote the first one i think overall my problem with this movie is that it's the first one is, is so concise with what it's trying to do and it's original and it's kind of just understated Mm-hmm. And it, I felt like they went into this movie um, with like without a plan. Like the well, first they went into it with a plan for a sequel. Like so, they, they're trying to retro authorize new facets to the first one to fill in blanks. I don't know. If that that's they had mapped out ideas for a sequel before the first one was released. Mm. Um, in part because they. Uh, wanted more creative control. This is the same team behind Saw. And while Wanell wrote the following two Saw films, uh, neither of them were really happy with how that franchise had gone. Um, so they sort of mapped it out so they'd be ready ahead of time should they get a sequel. Uh, but a lot of things changed and a lot of those ideas originally shifted over to the conjuring and in uh the first draft of the uh, insidious chapter two uh wandell compared it to the cell in terms of what they were trying to go for um huh. which that kind of makes it, sense it does kind of meet the end of that first movie where it's this weird dream world with creepy shit it's and like these almost yeah, and those weird characters. But uh, Juan said that he didn't think it would match the feel of that first film, and he wanted to stick with the characters and kind of ground it. Uh, he also said he was tired of making horror movies at this point. So his pitch to Juanel was, make this more of a domestic thriller and mm-hmm. less of a horror movie. Um, and, and with less like supernatural elements, because if you take out everything, there's kind of the, the main drama push is who is this Josh character and why is he kind of a stranger to his family after the events that occurred in the first movie? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like devolves into this almost like shining Jack Torrance, like he's kind of off and you can't kind of figure out why or like the audience knows kind of why, but the characters that the family members aren't really... Mm-hmm kind of knowing what the audience knows because at the end of the the last movie uh it turns out that the the person who was haunting or who was visiting him uh josh in the astral plane or the further kept, like went through and like 
into the real world and then killed. Yeah. Possessed him and then killed Mm -hmm. Elise at the end of the first one. But, but that's also um, part of my problem here with like, it's not just the script is, is poorly written in terms of dialogue and how the characters are totally different than what they were in the last movie. Even Um, it's, it's like, I can't tell when you have a movie like this, where there's rules, like there's the further and you can astral project and, Oh, you can't do this, but you can do this. Like you have to kind of know the span of, okay, what, how is my imagination going to run with this or what are my Mm -hmm. limitations? And when you have like, um, okay, so Josh is possessed by this Parker crane person who's also haunted by his mother separately. So why is he, uh, there's just so many like weird disconnects that I'm, I'm confused of, okay, why should I be scared of this? What is the intention here? And why, like, I, I don't know how I'm trying to explain. I guess, it. I guess I just, most of the time I was watching it, I felt a why uh, in yeah. a way I didn't with the totally. first one, the first one, the stakes are very clear from the beginning. Um, whereas with this one, uh, Rose Byrne. Why can't I think of her name? It's is it Moira? It's something Renee. like that. Uh, no, Renee. Renee. Yeah. Renee, but with an A I at the end. Yeah, uh, that always throws me off in the subtitles. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, Renee There's a silent is X in the beginning of the name too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just kidding. Wow. Uh, doing crowd work for for names for people's names. <laughs> Renee's. Uh, uh, character has like nothing to do in this movie uh yeah she doesn't have the drive that she does in the first one she just has like a vague notion that something's off and the scenes with her uh are kind of the more neither section of this film really works for me but it sort of splits fairly early on with renee on the one hand and then uh specs and Tucker yeah. and uh, Lorraine investigating together in the other. And the Renane stuff it was just so uh, repetitive. It was just yeah. like she'd get spooked at or yelled at or like the baby would be in a different spot uh, over and over again. Whereas the investigation at least had a couple ideas that I thought were interesting Mm um so going over to that plot uh it's the three i mentioned and because uh lorraine or elise has passed on they bring in uh carl that's who's his name yeah carl uh who's like another psychic they say he's like the second best yes the second Um, best and it, where He's Lorraine not had Christoph Waltz, by the way, yeah, <laughs> where Lorraine had like the cool ass gas mask type yeah. deal in the first one, <laughs> Carl like has dice with letters yeah. on them, and when he rolls the dice, it'll spell out words that the dead are trying to say. Um, yeah, so like he'll ask questions almost like a magic eight ball, like does she like me? Am I really the second best? And like roll the dice. And then the mm. dice will say something 
and and it's like in the third one is there going to be a cootie catcher medium you know where it's just like (laughs) they're cutting out you know strips of paper like it's just kind of ridiculous because that that's also something that is just a large rehash this feels like a remake of the first one because there's so like even like similar scene structures and Mm -hmm. everything and they're introducing unneeded like unnecessary characters like carl like bringing back specs and tucker if like I think that I feel for Rose Byrne because just like in the first movie, she's relegated or delegated to the backseat. Once we find out that homeboy can uh, astral project and then, Oh, now, you know, she doesn't have a role. And then instead of like embracing the scary notion of let's have a supernatural kind of domestic thriller, that's not a haunted house movie, but someone who doesn't recognize their partner anymore after he went into the further to get their son, maybe like who didn't believe in God and is now Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I was, you know, choked by a demon thing in another realm. Like it doesn't deal with the tension of like, is this really Josh or is this a PTSD or like, Mm -hmm. it it should have been a more, a tighter story that would have been about their marriage. There's no way to really do that because the audience knows at the end of the last movie, it's not Josh. So, yeah, but there's no know. way to. Yes, but I'm <laughs> saying there's no way to build that tension in a way that's satisfying for the audience well, and doesn't just yeah, feel like true. it'd be dragging that's them true. along. Yeah, like um, how could you address something like that from the character's perspective and have the audience care when they already know mm-hmm. who Josh? Well, they already know that Josh one of the interesting cast. things is. Uh, they play it fairly subdued. Like I assumed he was going to be like an out and out killer from the start based on the end of the last movie. Yeah. Um, but he pretends until he can't anymore that he is Josh. Uh, but it's like, so, so does that mean like, you know, making love to his wife and like, what if he doesn't like brushing his teeth and he's, just, you know, like it's just so weird that he wouldn't just peace out and go, okay, cool. I'm, free like what is his next goal like he doesn't there was no kind of the the bad guy the bride in black or the person who possessed josh mm-hmm. i mean his his thing was okay he wants to possess the child which is why he went after uh the kid in the in the first one uh, or i i, I like no was that was a him, different uh yeah that was demon. that demon. darth maul demon but yeah, yeah. Like, I, but he's quoted there's like some line in this movie that's like he wanted to start a new, oh, with Josh as a child. Sorry. Yeah. So going back to the beginning, he wanted to, that's why he latched onto Josh in the further was he wanted a second chance. Mm-hmm. He had uh, come across Josh in the hospital and randomly marked him because he knew he was dying and wanted to Ooh. die, go to the further and then possess this random kid that he saw in the hospital. And I don't think it was that uh, thought out. I think it was more, he was a serial killer. He sees this kid and like freaks the kid out, but there's like a memorable exchange the day he kills himself with this kid. And so then I think his ghost is like, remembers that and sort of seeks the kid out, but he still has those impulses. Cause yeah, basically uh, they roll the dice and it uh, leads them to this abandoned hospital, which, uh, Abandoned Linda Vista Hospital in LA. Like that's where they shot a shitload of movies. I think they bulldozed it maybe a couple of years ago, but uh, apparently it's it's one of the most haunted locations in the the country that people would like 
do mm-hmm. ghost hunting, like the way that they, you know, you see it in the movie. I'm sure there's a shitload of props, but there really were like a shitload of like leftover beds and medical equipment. And it was just a really spooky yeah. looking place. In interviews, they say it was incredibly spooky. Uh, and they were actually, this was the last film to shoot there uh, mm. before it was torn down. The interviews I read were time of the movie being released. So I don't know if it actually went according to plan, but the plan at that time was to turn them into low-income housing. Oh, so um, that all those people are fucking haunted by all these scary demonic things. Yeah. <laughs> of course, those assholes. It's not going to be like a Walmart where you're, you know, trying mm-hmm. to see what type of rice cake you're going to get. And then, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, man. But anyways, abandoned hospitals are spooky oh, as shit. You cut out, Paco. God damn it. Oh, I heard you. Hospitals are spooky as oh, shit. There you go again. <laughs> uh, and I recommend... Uh, anyone who has a chance to explore an abandoned one uh, to take that opportunity. Did you um, say that you, you explored yeah, one? Uh, yeah. My cousin's like 30th birthday was the same as my 21st, like the same weekend. Hmm. So uh, he and a bunch of his friends in Chicago uh, and I went to this abandoned hospital and I was actually too much of a pussy to go in. Um, hmm. Because like, were you scared of like security or uh, asbestos or ghosts? Like, I was worried <laughs> about breaking into a building and getting the cops called on us. But sure. they were like, "It's Chicago; all the cops are busy." <laughs> yeah. So they all went in and uh, took a bunch of really cool footage of this hospital that was torn down like a year or two later, and it it was super creepy. And I've since explored other abandoned buildings, never hospitals, but just seeing the footage from inside, it's it's something else. And Did I you ever uh, see anything or get touch feel anything? Nah, because uh, ghosts aren't real. Um, there you go. Yeah, um, <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't believe in the twenty-one so, grams thing? <laughs> no, I think that's just farts. My, my, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's just like all the shit leaving your body. And what if you have a yeah. fat, like, I think I have a fat soul that's way more than 21 grams, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Huh, he lost like 26 grams. That's weird. <laughs> Dude, this guy lost three pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh, his stomach. Deflated. That's what Will Smith's seven pounds movie was about. <laughs> yeah. I think. Checks out. Getting rid of his fat soul. He was like, yeah. he had body dysmorphia and. Anyway, (laughs) so anyways, they're in the hospital and there's some spooky stuff and it turns out they're going to the ICU, which prompts the flashback where we find out that, why can't I think, I was so bad with the names today, Uh, Parker Crane. Yeah. um, Fuck yeah. Saw Josh and like sort of lashed out at him. And so then... Rose Byrne is dealing with other spooky house shit, and it's really boring. So, well, is that where it goes into the the like unsolved mysteries portion, where like she's writing and it's still flashback, and uh, Josh's mom is riding, the, riding elevator. the elevator with yeah. the, with uh, Parker Crane in a uh, in a trench coat, and it's just such a weird exchange because she's like talking to him doing? and saying like yeah. yeah, and like what are you doing out of your room or oh I'm sorry about my my you know son who like bothered mm-hmm. you yesterday or whatever and he walks away and then she goes you know the camera follows her and she goes and talks to the receptionist and 
dun dun dun. What? That patient he died. He killed himself he, yesterday. Yeah, he he yeah. threw his ass off the the roof. You didn't mm-hmm. see that cool picture I t- I tweeted at you. Just kidding. It, it, 1986. Uh, but. Yep. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then. Um, well, like, it's just, it's strange because it does go a little back and forth between 1986 and now. And there's a bunch of, like, like it's it's um they're in a new house and because there's like a stained glass window that creates this red gel light that's super intense or it feels like it's a new house but it's a family house like that's not the mom's house from the first movie that so that confused me off the bat yeah i had to go back and check that's parker crane's house like they got the records from the hospital okay uh i think is what's implied uh, and then there's more flashbacks there. Is this where we see Parker getting abused by his mom? That's later. That's later in the movie, which, which, you know, it creates a, a, a couple of other different problems. Like the, the movie, it has this slow build where you don't really see anything or anything like of substance for a good uh, portion until uh, Barbara Hershey, who's, who's uh, the grandma um, is, like she hears something or something from Dalton's room. Who's the kid who was in the first movie who was lost for all of the movie. Uh, but uh, is saying like grandma, there's someone behind you and she looks and no one's there. Um, and then it creates Patrick Wilson. Who's Josh as this tough guy. Like there's a bunch of moments where he's sort of gaslighting. Oh, like, no, I mean just, we gotta, you know, not mention it. You know, we gotta get back to reality, you know, like he's obviously, you know, not addressing anything and, and kind of like, a well, that's all, that's all in the a plot that I'm just kind of not really going into because it's oh. mostly just Rose Byrne walking around. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, except for they give away the, she knows who Josh is right away when she plays the song on the piano that, uh, mm-hmm. was in the first movie. Do you remember? Uh, I mean, I think I remember talking about like I was, frustrated that she's playing a piano it's the please tell me how to feel song on the piano mm-hmm. and it never is addressed again and then in this movie or maybe they even mentioned in the first movie i can't remember but it's like their song like she is a songwriter apparently i still have no idea what her vacation is um <laughs> but she it's like their song and he doesn't recognize it and then you're also cutting to oh uh, the real josh is in this further place still so he's not dead question mark or he is, or he's just being held there like the, the kid. And mm-hmm. he's playing that, those notes on the piano in the further that he's in. Mm-hmm. So you know that he's him or whatever, but it's like just a bu- building up a bunch of things and it's introducing you to Carl and it's introducing you to reintroducing you to specs. There's that uh, James Wan cameo where uh, specs and Tucker uh, take Carl to like their, their, uh, their place. Did you guys catch that? Or Paco, did you see that? No, I didn't realize it was James Wan. Yeah. There's like a quick shot. Like there's a background on, uh, like Spex's computer. That's the three of them. And it's, it's really cute. Huh. Um, nice. but there's also, it's, it's also where the movie starts. Like, so you follow Rose Byrne for a little bit, but she still doesn't feel like the main character. And then the scene, the major substantial scene is another baby monitor scene. That's super similar to the first movie where she's 
like doing something and is hearing someone talking to her baby Callie, 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 uh, <laughs> uh, um, in her like bassinet or whatever. And it's someone like uh, singing merrily, uh, row, row, row your boat. And so she like runs up and there's like a woman ghost now who um, I guess was Parker's mom or was that a different actor? And she like s- slaps Rose Byrne hard enough uh, to like have her pass out. Like she I is like I thought that was out. the same. Like that was the mom. I thought so too. I'm not which positive. Was, which was awesome actually. Like I liked that idea because James Wan is using that really tight in camera work to like um, exaggerate the closeness of these ghosts or like supernatural things that are close to these characters. So it's Mm. not like something jumps out at you and there's a ghost across the room or something. It's, and it's not someone directly behind you or like a hand on your shoulder. It's literally like two faces in a a close up shot that are so like uh, stark in contrast to each other and also just sudden and kind of scary. Like it's, super claustrophobic like something's breathing on your neck mm-hmm. uh, which I, I really do it's a good holdover that I, I like in a lot of the stuff that we've seen um yeah but yeah that's when uh carl kind of becomes another uh you know character and you know isn't that where he's trying to there's yeah the b plot of him with specs and tucker trying to solve this mystery separately from the family plot i thought was the more engaging of the two plots Mm -hmm. it's still neither plot is good but this one was more interesting to me uh it felt like they were trying to work and play with the cliches whereas the first plot just felt like generic haunted house bullshit um yeah but yeah, so they get to his house, and yeah, I believe Parker Crane's. Parker Crane's house. I believe this is when there's the flashback uh, of him saying his name is Parker and his mom as a child, and his mom being like, "That's not your name. That's the name your dad gave you." Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and it's a, a really good scene actually because it's uh, Specs and Tucker are in this bedroom upstairs and all of a sudden you see this little girl on the other side of the bed like through their camera mm-hmm. and they like turn around slowly and you and there's just that, you know, uh character and then I think that's when the like it, there's something creepy because the kiddo is saying like don't, you know, you have to if she sees you she'll make me kill you mm-hmm. and it's just kind of like I love that part of the first insidious of like the kiddo uh, Dalton saying like, I don't want him to hear you. Like you have to be quiet. Like I love that idea of um, it's, it's so dangerous. It's so scary of like, Oh, we got to be quiet. And it, but that's kind of where the schlocky humor, cause there's a lot of like humorous moments. Cause they, they, they like quickly uh, retreat from the room. As soon as the spectral kid is like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, you got to leave or else he'll make me kill you. And they're like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, and leave. Yeah, and at this point, it's revealed that the person uh, they're speaking to through the dice isn't as they thought. Lorraine, or no, at least uh, sorry, it's conjuring in this man. Yeah, it's fucking. (laughs) uh, It's instead actually the mother of death, 
And she tries to drop a chandelier on them, but they barely escape. Uh, and then... Uh, they hear a knocking on, like, a, a, like a wall in the house, and then mm-hmm. they knock in, like back and then there's a bigger knock because uh, again half of these supernatural movies are people slamming doors or knocking uh to communicate um Mm -hmm. and they find a room that's hidden in this house full of like church like pews with all of these uh people seemingly sitting these these figures draped in white uh sheets Uh, not like a kkk thing but like more of like a morgue uh and that's where it's revealed that parker crane this kind of well, the, the creepy, crazy guy that you've been, you know, seeing is actually the bride in black who he's, um, uh, you know, he's a cross dresser. And this is kind of a, a, a strange um, part of this movie, too, is um, like, do you guys remember Silence of the Lambs and how uh, Buffalo Bill's like uh, transvitas, transvitism, trans, transvestism? God. Yeah. Like, there's a difference between gender and sexuality, obviously. So, like, it's, it was, this movie's PG-13, and you're made to think, okay, this man dresses in this um, bride outfit, and you you see, there's a flashback, and you see him, like, putting on makeup, and it's actually super frightening. Like, it it was really creepy, but you don't Mm -hmm. see the pathos of it where you would with, like, Psycho. And there's, it even alludes to Psycho with crane who's in josh's body talking to himself when really he's talking to his mom mm-hmm. seemingly i guess and even like there's through a shower curtain because they talk in the bathroom like in a couple scenes but th- that's what's so hollow about the movie is that because it's pg-13 it, it weakens the overall characters like mo and realism but because it's pg-13 you can't really explore that of like it's like the freddy krueger thing where it, oh, it also a child feels murderer. like no, he's, he was probably a great, like a pedophile. He was a shitty well, but they they never go into that, even in the R-rated Nightmare on Elm Street, because some things I think are more interesting as subtext. Like the remake made it text, and I feel like that that movie loses a lot of the edge because uh, I but think there's... there is something about having mystery to your villain. Uh, but with the, what's interesting about this is they. Them. It over explains the murderer while also making him less scary because we get all this and then they have no problem getting out of the house despite a couple like murder attempts. They're just fucking fine. Um, And it answers it answers too many questions from the first movie, but also complicates more things from the first movie with what we were supposed to interpret from previous scenes that we'd seen before. Like it doesn't like show you a bunch of like footage from the first movie, but things that are happening concurrently to the, you know, simultaneously kind of like the back to the future two thing mm. where it's like, these things are happening, but you're in the, you know, you're seeing the story of what was really occurring during those moments. I, I just think the, the, this is another one of my problems with the script is that there's too many shortcuts that kind of absolve all like, responsibility to actually make a coherent story with characters that you, I want to know what his drive is to put on that outfit. And it's not just because your mom wanted you to be a girl and Mm -hmm. the 
like kind of weakness. Like it's so two dimensional. Like there's no, there's not even like Buffalo Bill. It doesn't really necessarily get into all of the antics of why he is the way that he is, but mm-hmm. it leaves the mystery enough that it, it, it makes him more scary. But here they, they over explain parts, but in this strange, like cookie cutter way that actually undermines the like spookiness of them, even though, um, you know, going into this a little bit meta, um, I feel like this movie is not only a big, um, like homage to psycho, um, and, uh, poltergeist two, which also came out in 1986, which I think is when, did you guys ever see that? No. Yeah. Is that the one where there's like the weird flashbacks to like an underground church or something? Or is that poltergeist three? I, I think the third one is like an apartment building. So I think you're right. Like this one, cause it does include most of the original cast, like Craig T Nelson, but mm-hmm. I think he's like possessed by this, like other character. Who's the same. It's kind of like that same juxtaposition of like mm-hmm. this evilness kind of taking over this, uh, you know, matri or a patriarch of the family kind of thing. And it's, it's just strange thinking of like 1986. Why was that chosen? You know, it, cause the movie's not like, in those moments, not like inherently eighties, like stranger things where it's trying well, to I think take it's, over. It's just trying to work backwards from when Patrick Wilson would have been about the same age as Dalton was in the first movie. But um, it's, um, it's, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Wes Craven's new nightmare. The, um, it was mm-hmm. Wes Craven's movie that he made before scream, which I think is one of the best, um, horror movies of the nineties of Wes Craven's work, because it's, it's kind of like a proto scream where it's super meta. Like it's, <sighs> Heather, it's so bad. I, I, okay. Like <laughs> yeah. the mo- I separated into two different categories of like the idea, like the overall concept and how just bonkers it is mm-hmm. versus like, it's not scary. Like it's not a nightmare on Elm street movie. It's like this almost, like an other evil is taking on the mythos of this Freddy Krueger fake character, but it's taking place like Wes Craven plays himself and Robert mm-hmm. England, who's Freddy Krueger, like they're making a new movie and some things are going wrong on set. And it's like kind of this weird quasi, I think he would kind of go in that realm with, was it Scream to maybe Scream three when it takes place in like Hollywood and there's like stab movies and it's like meta in that regard. I think um, that's the third one. But but there's there's remember. a bunch of callbacks. Like um there's a part where Dalton is uh dreaming and then all of those sheeted figures are in his room, which was one of my favorite uh mm-hmm. scenes of the movie because it makes you feel like a child under the sheets because he pulls the sheets over him and it's just like it's the idea of the safety is not really there and um ultimately his mom snaps him out of it but the sheets are torn like as if there were really things there mm-hmm. and that's a huge scene in new nightmare of uh, heather langenkamp's son like having a nightmare or something and there's like claw marks in the sheets and even the child under the covers was a total lift from that as well as figures in sheets uh was was um lynn shea was actually in new nightmare as the nurse in like a weird dream sequence Hmm. who like i think is even pulling someone in a sheet like a, a dead body like freddy krueger is lynn shay i don't know not to tangent but it's like it, it's it's hello nurse by the way <laughs> right uh evan uh, animaniacs sorry 
it's it's um <laughs> it, 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 there's just it's just interesting be, like it, it's to bring it all home like i think a lot of this movie is also about belief it's about like what power you give certain things um and how denial is uh is not sort of helpful Wait, to anybody sorry i yeah. you lost me somewhere because everything up to this point was like the homages to the other yeah. films so the belief how does that well, tie in i, I just think this like, like a new new t- story now i good question i don't know how to explain what i'm i'm thinking <laughs> but it's like I, I feel like a lot of this movie is about uh being gaslit you know like um josh's character who's now possessed is saying oh you know everything's fine and their their children are going like, what's wrong with daddy and all of these things. And you're he's trying to say everything's hunky dory and stuff. And it's like the, the idea of believing that someone is that safety is around mm-hmm. the corner or like the idea that you could have the ghost hunters show up or, you know, specs. But that, that doesn't mean you're safe. And, and that's that's the thing that's that's so fascinating about um, horror, the horror genre in particular. But when it comes to like ghost things and you know, supernatural elements where it's so, of course, in the real world, people go like, oh, that's, that sounds insane. But mm-hmm. um, it's, I, I think it's just an interesting, it's the idea that in Nightmare on Elm Street, he like Freddy Krueger, you know, to generalize all of them is like, he gets his power by the belief, you know, that's how he has been resurrected of like someone's remember, like he, he has some sort of power related to that, that's supernatural. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, you could, without them pressing without them believing like they're not um josh is is always dismissing that oh you know i'm mm-hmm. still seeing people and he's like no you're not just don't don't look at it don't worry about it when it's going to happen regardless and it, i don't know uh, evan cut out this last hour but <laughs> yeah i i think there's something there in that it's about how you can't look away from what you know is true, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, and that kind of plays into the going for the domestic thriller idea that Juan was trying to pitch. I don't think it really works. And I think this is the first time I have to agree with you guys that I'm not a big fan of Patrick Wilson. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, he's bad. So he, on the he's, fence. He's, is he bad in this one? He's a he's not good oh. in this. Uh, this Do you think movie. he's phone, like he wasn't as enthusiastic about this one as he was the first one, or he's no? It's in? it's more or he's it he's just... trying to. I mean, it's way more challenging to play someone who's playing someone than it yeah, is exactly. to play like someone. And I think he's just struggling with that. Um, <laughs> I'm a dude. Yeah. I'm a dude who astral projects and is another dude who dresses as a woman but who's not a dude. Who I'm a dude playing a dude Which, inside I mean, another dude with a dress. If you just <laughs> if you just describe it like that, any actor's gonna struggle with that. Like yeah, unless you're that's a hard you fucking <laughs> thing to play. Evan, uh, Evan that well, that sounded like Eddie Murphy's first phone call from jail in the eighties or whatever when he was <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, 
for the dress. <laughs> no, c- come and pick, come and bail me out. We'll make waffles. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Shrek will make some waffles. Um, anyway, uh, so. but I, I think the, the the thing that we all dug about the first movie is like everything is kind of understated or left to your imagination. And here mm-hmm. it's just like, they're, they're hitting you over the head with everything. Um, what, and even with like ex- expository dialogue and like in that secret room where like those sheeted bodies are, they find mm-hmm. this like treasure chest of obviously, Oh, newspaper clippings. Oh, the bride in black did this. And all these people are missing and all all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, it hits you over the head with everything where it's the screenwriter, obviously, um, Lee Wan L wanting to, to, you know, hold our hand while he's walking us through this like darkness. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, I don't remember how long the first one is, but this one feels a lot longer yeah. than it is. It's like an hour and 45 minutes, but it feels well over two hours because, it's repetitive not only with the first film but with itself and it's just none of it is particularly engaging or fun we're never curious about where things are going uh at least i wasn't i was so checked out uh but i guess yeah i was bored like 30 minutes in because you're also by having a chapter two you're already realizing that all the characters already believe in these Mm -hmm. rules and things so there's no kind of like oomph to reveal something or to see to have the character see something they've never seen before like there's no sort of mystery to it so it's just like through the motions and there's no like I don't know. It's it's it, it's just is kind of boring. Like I don't know what happened with the pacing because it's not like, oh, let's set up something uh, here and then mm-hmm. we'll do something here and then the kid is gonna do that. Like, there's just not like an interesting series of uh, sequences that up the ante as you get further into this movie. Yeah. So I guess where we left off and the recap is. Uh... They go, they decide that they're going to drug Josh now. Specs. So stupid. Let's see. So that's Lorraine. Which they, they wire him. They, they put a wire on him because heaven forbid all three of you go into a house just to have a conversation. But you have to have the scene they with wire words. Foster, to be clear. Uh, they send Foster in alone. Lorraine takes Renee. Uh, the kids are at a babysitter. The idea is Foster is going to uh, inject. Uh, no, wait. Foster is one of the kids. Carl. Yeah, Carl, you mean Carl. Is the, Carl, Carl is the second God damn best. it. There's too many fucking names. Which I think in uh, Pig Latin is like, how do you say second best? In, he's like asking the dice like, am I really uh-huh. second best? English? <laughs> Sorry about that. So it's fucking no, no, no. Carl is going to go drug him. Specs and the big burly Tucker. guy, Tucker. Not, not Brett Gilman. Yeah. Um, are in the van, and they even joke like, oh, it feels like we're in the FBI. Um, and they're listening in. and It's like a sting. Yeah. It's supposed to be a suspenseful scene. 
doesn't really work because yeah. you know exactly where it's going from the start. Uh, turns out he knows because he said he's like, "Mom told me about your dice and that you were coming." And like, roll your dice to see what I have in my hand. And then the dice spell out knife. Uh, and I can say it. Espe. <laughs> yeah, like he's he's attacked. Like there's a there's a big rumble, and the the mm-hmm. joke in the van was like, oh, the code word's quesadilla. No, it's unicorn. And there's like it's hard God to create that tension and scare. Which, to be honest, totally laughed like crazy because this this guy Carl is mm-hmm. like you know he's fighting off Patrick Wilson with the syringe, and he's like quesadilla, quesadilla. Um, <laughs> it's just it, like you can't. You can't set yourself up for success and then undermine it two seconds later. Like you, you either have a movie that embraces both of those and is blended together in a way mm-hmm. or huge leaps and valleys between them or not at all. Like it just, none yeah, of the tone the, worked. The comedy never really clicks with everything else that's going on. Um, which it just, it feels kind of clueless, like something Michael Bay would do. But but you know? it's it's also the uh, what's what's that stupid song that's the like you know like the yeah Benny Hill well, yeah Benny Hill yeah like the two so he says quesadilla and the two guys run in and like mm-hmm. one trips so like one gets the syringe in the leg and the butt just like a uh, you know Terminator two and then the other yeah. gets you know like uh, uh, hit uh, really hard in the head and is knocked out and then. Carl, you know, you assume that he's dead because he has a knife to his throat and he's sort of thrown in a way that you could interpret it as his neck being sliced open. Mm-hmm. And then it, it cut like, but the way that it shot is like a comedy. Like you have these bumbling characters. There's no like scariness to it because it's so clumsy. Um, but then it cuts to the further and that's where um, Carl is kicking it with Josh. And uh, is this where... I guess Elise hasn't showed up yet. The like, Lin Shay returns. Like, yeah, they're, they're this is where they go into this time travel portion because you see Danzig pacing, mm-hmm. and then you also like you're because you see him like you're you're seeing the part in the first movie where the guy's pacing outside. Like, it brings you to these moments that you saw in the first movie, including. Um, in the first movie, they're, they're Patrick Wilson and, and Rose Byrne are hanging out in bed, and that's mm-hmm. where there's banging on the door. So Patrick Wilson's coming downstairs, and from our current perspective, you're seeing that Patrick Wilson is the one banging on the door in mm-hmm. this like roundabout interstellar, like Murph, Murph, which you know this beat interstellar to like yeah, <laughs> make him stay, Murph. God damn it, um, which. Uh, as an aside, um, do you think that Christopher Nolan has a horror movie in him, or do you think that he's made a horror movie already? Uh, and what would you what What do you think he would make a good horror movie with? Like, do you think I that don't he could? think I don't think it's necessarily his style. Yeah, exactly. I don't I think, think it's not his style. His films are so cold and removed. I mean, yeah, they're too calculated. It doesn't. You have to have some level of emotion really mm-hmm. uh for horror yeah there has to be some passion and like yeah. i like nolan but i feel like his 
his whole thing is setting up very intricate set pieces for everything mm-hmm. and not necessarily in like the Michael Bay sense and more like he and his brother do it on the script level of like it's all about trying to trick the audience in a way you know and mm-hmm. play with our expectations that he's so busy trying to do that that it'd be hard I am not expressing clearly what I think on this. I just don't think he would I, be a good fit for it. I think I, he's yeah, too I, brainy. Yeah. Um, did, did you it's, see I'm, his short, like his short student film? I can't fucking remember what it's called. It, it's like following. That, no, it's it's bef- which following. I really enjoy. It's the it's his short before following. It's like Mm-mm. maybe seven minutes, and it's this weird. Um, surreal it, it almost is like a lynchian kind of it's this hmm. like black and white eight minute short that's kind of a weird lynchian movie but it like i think you're right like he's too he doesn't care about the people in any of his movies he cares about the actual like kind of events that are happening uh so yeah i think it would be kind of ridiculous too because at least like that's something that Juan has shown to be able to bring to some of his movies even in an action film like that sentence is at least some sort of emotional connection to characters and who's actually on the screen while nolan has notably and not to throw shade at jonathan nolan either who i think is a great writer um they just together don't really know how to write characters with a whole lot of emotional stakes and background and you know pathos um and then even and when that's, they do, you kind of need that for a horror film to be connected to it. Yeah, no, you're you're so right. And I mean, Inception kind of gets into that, like with uh, Marion Cotillard uh, yeah. chasing after Leonardo DiCaprio, like in this horror-y way. But that movie, it almost, and I, I love Inception. Like, don't get me wrong, um, uh, but it it it's it feels more hollow because of the characters aren't as like. They're archetypes. Vulnerable. Just, yeah, exactly. They're 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 just kind of like blank slates. I mean, I think it, the closest he's been able to do with some sort of like emotional connections is the prestige. Mainly, mm. of course, as he does a lot, where some woman has to die in order for one character to have some sort of arc that drives him, and another one has to be abused in order for another character yeah. to uh, have some sort of yeah. you know drive and stuff like that. But apart from that, I do think the prestige is w- one that he, at least his characters have some sort of emotional connection or also because like Hugh Jackman and um, Christian Bale are some of my most favorite actors. And I think they know how to emote really well um so yeah, I, mean, I that that, well, that might be part of it too but that's the only nolan that i can think of where i'm like oh yeah those seem like tangibly emotional characters mm-hmm. those seem like people. human beings and not yeah, chef pieces like, exactly see i mean i would i would argue that interstellar like not to stand oh, inter- interstellar but like interstellar yeah. the the i i watched it recently and i like cried multiple times paco can can you not listen to this um but like uh like but i mean like i i don't know if it's like an age thing like you think about how old you are and you think about your place in this world and you think about current 
global politics and global warming, <laughs> climate mm-hmm. change, all that stuff. And, and even like the idea that he has Ellen Burstein um, show up in the beginning in this like um, documentary clip thing, like really briefly. Yeah. And you're like, wait, is that Ellen Burstein? And then she shows up at the end and has yes. like the, Murph. the, well, she, she's surrounded by all of her family that she's made. She's made this mosaic of, of this humongous family only got Matthew McConaughey come and visit her as an old woman. Mm-hmm. And she said something, he was like, did you think I wasn't coming back? And she was like, I, I, Oh God, I'm going to cry. But it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, Oh, I, of course I knew you were coming back. Cause you know, my dad made a promise to me and Ellen Burstein yeah. is in the movie for five minutes, mm-hmm. steals the whole fucking thing because it's the idea that That's what she does. Nolan clearly cared about those characters and that, that family dynamic. Like even when Matthew McConaughey finds out that his father died, you know, mm-hmm. is it, like everything ha- kind of has a, a really more emotional toll to how it's a sci-fi movie, but sorry to go off on that. But um, yeah, I agree. I don't think Christopher Nolan could make a war <laughs> movie. All uh, right. Yeah. So either way, we're back in the further. Um, oh, and boy. this is where Elise is also revealed so in the way that's almost like Blade Runner uh, 2049, where. Like there's this big, uh, you know, sappy music, this big moment in the camera swoons backwards and mm-hmm. it's, oh, it's Elise and she's going to help them in the further find this dark house. And, uh, and this is where the, the, where the, the uh, bride or the bad presence lives or whatever. And this is where they go into 1986, where she's like, you need to ask you know, you've forgotten this. I've hypnotized you or you've gotten lobotomized. I didn't tell you, you know, on the quiet, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> it's like, I lobotomized you with, you know, a, a screwdriver and a bottle of Jack Daniels for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, she, she's like, you only your, you know, 12 year old self would know where this is or how to identify certain things. So mm-hmm. that's where they randomly are able to check into 1986 and where that scene that the movie opens with of, oh, sure, I'll show you. And the kid points to the door. Um, mm-hmm. He was really talking to Josh and Carl and Elise. And Elise, in another like throwaway, funny, lighthearted moment is like, oh, so that was that. That's what that was about. But it's it's so like unneeded in. I don't know. It's like we it's hard to explain like why I don't I... like it. It just don't like it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that they said, like, they cited the uh, Phantasm sequels as sort of uh, interesting a inspiration for it, um, but I just don't find it very interesting. And I guess because we've seen it so many times before, be it Back to the Future or Phantasm, uh, it's just not that emotionally satisfying um and meanwhile uh rose Byrne and the kids have returned to the house and now possessed josh is basically just doing jack nicholson at the end of the shining like there's even a part <laughs> where he yeah. wails on a door totally um and but that's after Josh he Continentals. He he. Do you remember the Continental SNL Christopher Walken uh, skit where yes. he's no. like this 
<laughs> it was super 19 like 80 or I guess 1993 or four or whatever where yeah. Phil Hartman like that era of SNL but he yeah. played this like smarmy gross he's got like a little pencil mustache, mustache and, he looks uh, like, like John Waters bro. in a in a yeah. nice bathrobe <laughs> and like, he's I mean, like uh, Hugh Hefner and John Waters yeah got together totally huh. it, it like, made a person but, too yeah <laughs> but it's the 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 whole he's talking to the camera. So it's, it's POV on SNL of all places, but it's POV of you're the woman who's in this guy's apartment and you're Mm -hmm. trying to leave, but he keeps flailing himself against the door saying, no, come on, (laughs) baby, let's make another drink. And it's, it's so like, it's so funny. Like the context of what it is, is awful. Like it is absolutely (laughs) despicable, like gross, but it's the cartooniness of it. That is just so stupid. Like it's, it's stupid. And at the end of every skit, I think he gets like maced or he, he like, he gets his comeuppance. Like they're aware mm-hmm. that he's the worst. Yeah. But, but yeah. So uh, Josh does that and chases them around the, the house. And that's when they like lock themselves in the basement. Uh, yeah, he, and like, lost... Locks them in the closet. Right. Yeah. But like, it's like the a... kids disappear. You only have like Dalton or something, right? No, they're both there when she's like huddling over them and Dalton goes into the further but how are specs and not specs? Uh, how do they? Well, so they Do they so, just wake up? No, or? yeah. Tucker in that, or Tucker when he's sedated, fall. Mm-hmm. Who's a larger man falls on top of Lee Winnell's character, and so he can't move, which is more that like Benny Hill shit. Mm. Uh, and and uh, he, he wakes up, or maybe Lee Winnell wakes up first, goes downstairs to intervene, gets you know hit and you know roughed up again. And then the other guy wakes up and goes downstairs to investigate. And also, you know, they're really, there's no reason to have them in this movie randomly. Like they don't work in the same capacity that they do in the first one. Well, interestingly, uh, apparently in the first one, uh, they had a larger role that Jason Blum, his only note producer uh, was cut this down. But in all the test screenings for the first movie, People loved those characters. Oh, sure. So he was like, put more of them in the next one. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it's, they went way too far in the other direction uh, in terms of doing, and they, they're so broad. They're comic relief and scenes that don't have comedy. Uh, and he shows up at the door with a Hot Pocket again. Does that yeah. not drive you crazy? Like... I mean, <laughs> what it is. Uh, Where there was, is there a hot pocket in the van or a, a toaster oven in the van? Or something? I think I think we see it when they're in the van. Uh, really? Is there a toaster? When they're talking about the strange. quesadilla and unicorn stuff, I could have sworn. Then why couldn't the code word have been hot pocket? Well, because it's like... Actually, uh, well, copyright. The whole thing's yeah. stupid. It's just <laughs> so stupid. But yep. uh, But yeah, uh, it's... But this is also interesting, too, because... Um, the kid is hiding while the dad gets in and he just starts choking Renee in this really graphic way. And Renee is now, he's completely the bride in black. He is now like, mm-hmm. it keeps doing quick shots where she's not seeing Josh anymore. Her husband's gone. It is this, like this entity who's choking her. And it's actually like sort of spooky. Like I loved the look of the bride in black. Like that. this is the is- one scene that kind of worked for me. Uh, totally because it's it's eerie and it's cross-cutting now to the further which 
I forget. What are they trying I to think do? This, I think we went ahead of ourselves. This is where the um, they go into Parker Crane's house, and mm-hmm. that's where they... Her fuck. Um, yeah, because it, isn't it revealed that, like... They find out that's, like Parker Crane is influenced by his mom. Like his mom was abusing him and like for being a man and trying to make. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was a like, while ago. Well, like mm-hmm. it, it cuts to them going into his room and there's a quick scene of him or of, uh, his mom showing him this uh, artwork that he did that it, it says, you know, Parker on it. And, it, and she's mm-hmm. like, what's your name? You know, Marilyn, my name's Marilyn or whatever. Yeah. But that was much earlier. Or is there another scene that I missed? Like, Cause I did go to the bathroom without pausing. No, because the, the, the whole point of them going into 1986 or whatever is to find mm-hmm. out where the dark house is so that they can find the mom or something, or they need to find where Dalton doesn't he as okay, I'm only falling. Cause oh. I don't, I haven't watched the movie, but here I'm reading that Dalton voluntarily goes into the further to help his father. Yeah, that's separate. That's to try to bring his dad back into his own body. Yeah, and Josh and others find Parker's house. They witness Parker's mother, Michelle, and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, yeah. And then they fight later. It's so weird. Yeah, it's not clear. Like, watching the movie, I went back on, on multiple scenes and restarted them. But I still never quite understood, other than I guess you have to have a showdown where they fight in the further, uh, like what the purpose was. Well, there is that really awesome moment. Like my other favorite part of this movie was, do you remember um, they're in the further and Carl is saying like, oh, I see Parker or whatever. And mm-hmm. he's like, I don't see anybody. And it like they're talking. He's about, right in front of him. He's yeah. right in front of him. And it's again, it's that it's it's the violation of space. It's the, the idea of like, it's not just being haunted. Uh, like a ghost is, is breathing down your neck. It's being in a domestic um, violence situation of, of being scared in that same capacity of being hovered over, of being possessive mm-hmm. of being, you know, it's, it's so like I, there's, it's, there's something different about the way that James Wan does it. That is so like interesting and, and scary to me. Um, but uh, that's also, uh, did we talk about how like Elise is, maybe that's at the end of the movie. Do you remember Elise is like, oh, Carl, I for, I didn't tell you, but you really have a heartbeat. You're not dead after all. And then Carl. Yeah, like, that's Dude. after. You're yeah. Like, Look, Elise, you're a dick. Why? Yeah, <laughs> yeah why are you thinking? <laughs> Who's like, your second best dead. Yeah, like you said, he was the second best man you've ever met. And you put him through that kind of torture, that existential shit. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell you at a heartbeat. Um, but yeah, like, uh, there, uh, it's, it's kind of, um, because Elise was the bridge into the further with her gas mask, being able to communicate in that capacity, Uh the movie were set up with a telephone. That's the tin can on a string that you, you know, like with old Campbell's tens that you talk with someone through and it's, you you know what Mm -hmm. I'm talking about? Um, yeah, they play with that a few times, like, uh where first the brothers are talking to each other and then they are playing with it outside in the yard with Josh. And then like at the midpoint of the movie, uh, someone from the further, like a malevolent spirit is talking to him. And I think that might be the same scene where his uh, sheet gets torn. Yeah. Is it not? 
Or I think because someone comes rushing out of the closet, which is exactly like the first movie where, again, Mm -hmm. the little child, the tiptoe through the tulip song, they're hiding in the closet and then rush out. And then this is the same thing where it's like, okay, you don't have hide and clap anymore. There's a Mm -hmm. scene where someone's playing the hot and cold game, which was like one of the dumbest. (laughs) Dad, you're getting hotter. No. In cool. it, 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 it just, it, I think it was in the eighties. One, the yeah, fire. it's at the very beginning of the movie. Oh, so stupid! Um, I just maybe it's because it's the third fucking ghost movie in a row, but it's the I f- just don't like, didn't care. I didn't really care either, and and I think the thing that's that, that I felt bad about was that I really enjoyed the first one because it felt fresh and it felt like oh, this mm-hmm. is a haunted house movie that that has things I've never seen in it or like ideas I never would have thought about. Like it had a spin on it. And this one kind of rehashes so many like little things and kind of tries to redefine the first one in doing so. And it, it yeah, cuts I, a lot of what made the first one so strong. I was developing a theory that what James Wan does well is analyze what works in her genre and like strip it to the bone and just stick to those. Mm-hmm. Uh, based off films like Death Sentence and Insidious, but now I'm not so sure that's true. Uh, I wonder, he talks in interviews about being exhausted while making this. I can see that. Because he was, uh, he went straight to it from The Conjuring, and during post-production and the press tour, he was doing pre-production for Fast and Furious 7. So, it was just like he wasn't sleeping. And I wonder if that's part of why there's a noticeable drop in quality as well. Like just being well, I mean, so this, overworked. Yeah. I mean, this came out the same year as Conjuring too. I think mm-hmm. Conjuring came out earlier and this came out in like September of 2013. Yeah. I think it's just overall fatigue. It's like, how could you do three movies that some feature the same cast members and like I kept getting confused after watching Conjuring of mm-hmm. like, keeping the character straight because there's also Barbara A Lorraine grandma is named her yeah. Lorraine. So I'm like constantly kind of um, confused, not confused, but like, it's just as weird. It's distracting. Um, it's totally an unnecessary distraction. And that's kind of the problem with this movie is I felt like it was a little bit unnecessary and not needed. It was almost like a forced um, sequel because I think this was the, um, last time that Lee Wan L and James Wan worked together, and James Wan would go on to have his directorial, or uh, Lee Wan L would have his directorial debut with the third Conjuring, mm-hmm. which I think he co-wrote. I don't know if he wrote the whole script. Um, did he work on the second Conjuring movie? Because he did direct the third Insidious movie, but I think they might have worked together one I more see, time. Sorry. See, there you go. I meant Insidious. I'm sorry, not Conjuring. God. Yep. That's where I'm getting. But he did work on. I could have sworn he worked on The Conjuring, but he didn't. James Wan directed the. Maybe yeah, but Lee Wanell. Oh yeah. Lee Wanell did not write either of the Conjuring movies, which. No, he didn't. That's right. We talked about that last week. Yeah. These things all blend together so much. The (laughs) interesting things is in the interview. I think Wanell helped break the story for The Conjuring because in the interview they talked about working on the story for The Conjuring together um, uh, as well. Lee so Wanell he didn't did direct the Insidious Chapter Three. He did. That's correct. Yeah. But this is okay. the last 
collaboration they had. Oh, Which interesting. That, like, other than their produ- their shared producer credits, mm-hmm. I'm sure the rest of the... Well, I think maybe there's... Are there only three Insidious movies, or is there a fourth There's movie? four. There's four. Yes. I think The Last um, Key is the fourth one. It, it's just... It's also interesting, like, I was, I was looking at the budgets of these movies, and mm-hmm. it, Conjuring was $20 million, and it made a huge return, and then this one is $5 million, which is up from the first movie that was one and a half. But mm-hmm. the return was still in like it was one hundred and sixty-two million dollars rounded up internationally uh, yeah, from box office mojo, and it's just like you—he's so trustworthy because his record, like financially speaking, um, because because he'll take like a small budget and he capitalizes on it. Like he knows how to make things on the cheap, and typically this is what I love seeing because you're you're seeing a filmmaker use their limitations to make a better movie and the idea that the first insidious movie was a fraction of the cost and Mm -hmm. a fraction of the story it was a much more simple plot that made it spookier and this one almost was like they overcomplicated everything explained too much and almost like backtracked for like things from the first movie in a way that just was unnecessary um yeah it it definitely felt like a huge step back yeah this is probably the worst movie of his since Dead Silence, right? Yeah, well, it's 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. But, the but just like in your personal um, opinion, where would oh, you put it? Oh, I think it? this was my least favorite of the ones we've watched so far. Like, Even more than Dead Silence? I love, like, I love Dead Silence in a different way. I think it's bad in a way, like I would watch that way more times than insidious too i think this is the one that i probably would skip like i would watch insidious again but probably not want to see this one like just forget about it completely interesting it just like it, I, I don't know i think dead silence is it, it's a bad movie but in a fun stupid way um mm-hmm. that you know it, the remarkable it's thing it's bad is, in that, an interesting way where this yeah. is just boring and forgettable well, it's like, how do you get $20 million and make a movie like Dead Silence, but then you make yeah. a movie like The First Insidious for one and a half million, and it not only looks better, it's scarier, it's more interesting, and it's, it, it, I don't know, it, it's just... Well, it's I mean, a lot of that is Lee Winnell. Uh, yeah. A lot of that's the story you're working from. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's strange though because I felt like we were on a good momentum, like Conjuring, I'm kind of lukewarm about, but... Mm-hmm. This one kind of was the first one that I feel like was a misstep. Like he should have taken a year off or to, the idea of having two separate ghost franchises or haunted house things. I know that the content and context is different, but they're so similar that, that it just is a detriment to this experience. So I don't know if it's that that's creating this. Yeah, I think for too. me, it's exhaustion as an audience person. And I mean, I only watch him. He spends months making these fucking things, like years probably from pre-production to the end of post. And I can't imagine being able to maintain interest in them after having just done two right before. I mean, hell, they said they were sick of doing them, right? Yeah. That's that's why he went to Fast and Furious after this. Uh, well, I, I think that which, he was also like he was trying. He stretched the whole time travel idea, and, it, and it's not necessarily like time travel. Like I don't know what you'd call it. It's just like it's time it doesn't messy- go in a linear way. You, so you can it's, like it's kind of yeah, like the, the, interstellar the interstellar thing. Yeah, yeah it, where but, time but, isn't and, linear. And, 
there's like certain moments where it's almost found footagey, like uh, Tucker and Specs have cameras at certain mm-hmm. points, and it's I think it's shot on digital like Ari Alexa or it's or Red, like it's shot on a like parts of this movie look like good, like in a, in terms of like um, creepy cinematography and like, but it's also this was the first movie that well, I guess Conjuring was a little distracting too, but like this movie felt like a Hollywood product. It didn't feel like the actors were as into it as they were in the first movie. They felt more like self-aware of their performances. Like there's a mm-hmm. part where Rose Byrne is like flailing awake. It's after she's knocked out and Josh, you know, kind of wakes her up and stuff. Like all of the characters just kind of, it feels obligatory. And, and even from James Wan's perspective, even though, um, I do feel like James Wan holds the enthusiasm on the set. Like, there's no portion of me that feels like he doesn't care about what he's doing. There's certain, he has the Michael Bay um, kind of attitude where I feel like he has five scenes, like sequences of like something spooky happening or like building, ratcheting something up mm-hmm. to tell. And then it's kind of trying to figure out how to put them all together. Kind of like Michael Bay is like, okay, I want to do this dumb thing here and I want to go to Egypt here. Well, and again, I think that, it kind of takes too much away because he works up to this point so extensively with Wanell. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of that is Wanell also being into it and Oh, and they're they're all they're both two different filmmakers. I, I think this is an interesting um sort of um branching off uh for these two uh collaborators because They've really, since they were younger, much younger filmmakers, and going back to Saw, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, they've been kind of together through this whole process. And then with the idea that Lee Wanell is like, you know, I'm going to take over the third Insidious movie, and I'm going to, you know, co-write it. And then he goes off to do, you know, his own thing with Upgrade and uh, the Invisible Man remake, which is amazing. Um, it, that it's it's almost, it feels like two separate filmmakers are trying to do two separate things as well, where it just seems like there's too many. Yeah. This doesn't have a coherent vision. Yeah. It just, it feels unfocused. Like too many things were going on and too many cooks were in the kitchen where I feel like there, there, there can't be, it can't be coincidental that they haven't worked together since. And I don't mean that there was a shitty falling out or any, like, mm-hmm. it just, I think that they were moving. It's kind of like Baxter boys. You know, they were all moving around in different sections of creativity and you had certain, you know, not everyone's going to be a Beyonce, you know, mm-hmm. some That's people true. are just going to be the child. Like Destiny's child. And yeah. so like Justin Timberlake left the Backstreet Boys to create yeah. his own thing, right? Yeah. Or yeah. was he in sync? Yeah, he's Oh NSYNC. God, I always forget that. Um, he's in sync. That's he's, right. Okay, whatever. It's the same shit. Yeah. You know, every now and then the band breaks up and the guys want to do their own creative projects, which and, and then you have never back though. that just are That's living true. in Berkeley somewhere. <laughs> Anyways, hey, there's more uh, the new kids on the cross streets now. God damn it. Uh, the new kids on the suburb. Yeah, they're the old kids on the uh cul-de-sac now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know, would you uh, Evan having not seen this movie, would you watch it? No. At all? I was I only I only wanted to watch it because of a continuation just to see where they would go with it. Even Mm -hmm. having read some poor reviews, some said like, hey, well, actually, the sound design, who is also the same sound designer for The Conjuring and The Insidious and I think Death Sentence as well. Like 
that team is pretty good at what they do. So I'd be mm-hmm. interested in that. But otherwise, like insidious to conjuring to yeah, this point. It's, so it's, it's the same it's, kind of expectations. Yeah, exactly. Which like is a good vibe. But like I only wanted to watch it for that. But then as soon as you guys started talking about it, just through the group chat, even just giving very small hints, I was like, obviously this would be a waste of my time. Yep. Sorry to say, even if I wanted to talk about it with you guys, I don't, I probably, from the sounds of it, wouldn't have much to input on it, other than um, carrying the plot summary, but that's also, who cares? <laughs> yeah. I don't do as much research as you guys do either, I just watch the movies, um, so I, no, I don't want to watch it, I don't care to. That's fair, and... I, uh... Yeah, it's to watch out there. Like, there's a lot better movies uh, to watch. Yeah. Like Mandy. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, I want to totally. sit down with that. I also, okay, for another, um, for hashtag scare Evan, um, you can omit everybody because I have been wanting to watch Hereditary and Midsommar for a long time now because I feel like those would be the kinds of horror that I would enjoy. I like horror that is disturbing to the core, not disturbing visually, but is just so unsettling to the core. But yeah, that's like, I like being really unsettled by a horror film. Um, Kind of like the lighthouse. I don't, would you guys consider that a horror film or is that more like a suspense thriller? I don't know what that is. I don't think I'd call it horror. It's more of like, yeah, it's, it's its its own thing. It's a shanty. Yeah, it's what? It's a sea shanty. shanty. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's I, I think of it. I think of it as in, uh, you know, there's oral histories that people on the sea or lighthouse keepers tell each other, and legends and myths. Yeah, and exactly. It's, it's like a legend, like a visual oral tradition of madness of two men. Um, he became the sea monster. Mm-hmm. It yeah. almost shook. But it's it's kind of like a fantasy. It's kind of like what Shyamalan wanted to have Lady in the Water be. I feel. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, probably like a fable. Well, I think that some of the scariest movies are. It's not Chucky uh, running after you. You know, Mm -hmm. wide shot. It is like I'm scared to go into the water after Jaws. It's I'm sort of nervous to go camping after Blair Witch. I'm I've moved into an old house. what's in like, am I going crazy or is there a ghost? Like, you know, it's those sort of things to make you reexamine what life is and what is scary in life of like, and what is a horror movie? You know, like it's, it's atmospheric, you know, alien, uh, Ridley Scott's alien. I would consider a horror movie, but it's on a spaceship. And maybe some people would think that it is in, I mean, I guess representation, but like, it's just like, um, it's interesting to look at um, what you fear um, in a different way. That's not just being startled awake by something or a clown with a balloon and a sewer. Like mm-hmm. it's the idea of um, having your loved ones, you know, taken from you and you don't understand why, or the idea that what the he- like someone is in the sewer. What? Uh, I don't know. I think uh, hereditary is awesome. I think you should totally watch it because it's, it's kind of this, that new is it mumblecore Paco? It's like mumble horror. That's it's like oh, fuck. I would not call it mumblecore. A lot of people call it elevated horror, which I think is condescending. Yeah, because, that seems a little condescending. Um, yeah. but anything elevated is a little elitist. <laughs> yeah, but it's because I don't think other horror is not 
it's lesser. Yeah, um, but it's it's artsier uh, horror, and so those are good. Like, I would definitely check both those out. Uh, I think you should check out Relic. uh, Okay, that's your hashtag scare Evan. Yep. Jason is yeah. check out Relic. What about you, Paco? Do you have a recommendation for me this week? And it can be uh, the same honestly. one I've been giving you for months. Watch fucking Mandy. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, you totally yep. should, Evan. Like that movie almost seems tailor made for you. It's good. so good. I mean, someone wears a black looks... rabbit shirt in it. I mean, anyways, <laughs> it uh, so next I... time. What is next? It's Fast and Furious? Fast and Furious 7. 7. Perfect. I can't believe James Wan did the first 6. That's amazing. Yeah. We just, (laughs) you know, like, that's a lot of episodes. Thank you all for listening to our Fast and Furious episodes that are really tough to go through, but we'll help you out by giving you a summary for the next episode. Yeah, and the most patriotic, too. Um, Um, And we watch them in reverse. So we watch the James Wan one, and then we go backwards. Yeah. Sure. Anyway, it sounds like yeah. Baco needs to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> he keeps stringing it along. I, I can start to tell. I love you, Baco. Love you guys too. We, we will see. We'll hear from all of you. Or what am I saying? You'll hear us next week. We can't wait to talk to you about Fast and Furious 7. Take a step away from the horror. Yeah, God. The action realm. I think I'd watch a Transformers movie at this point. No, don't. Oh my God. I'm so don't, tired of fucking dude, ghosts. No. Don't, don't curse. Don't bring that curse to this world. I hope uh, there are ghosts in the Fast and Furious Seven movie. Do you think there's <laughs> Transformer ghosts? <laughs> oh, like, do you? What? What do you think they they're hell or after? Is there a purgatory? No, the, there was something with like the weird creator Transformer where I thought she was dead but came back. I don't fucking know. Whatever. She goes to Indy's <laughs> chop shop. Who cares? They're Thank stupid alien robots. Yeah. yeah. And we yeah. aren't. So. Yeah. Please, so please review and. Rate. Yep. And Rate, all that review, stuff. Subscribe, all that shit. Find us on Instagram at Vulgar Tours Podcast and on Twitter at Vulgar Tours Podcast, right, Jason? I think it's not Tours Vulgar. It's Auteurs Vulgar. At Auteurs Vulgar. I think someone nabbed the first one. They're not uh, responding to my DMs of obvious threats and uh, vulgar. Speaking of vulgar, that's where we get our uh, name is me. The vulgar comments we're making. i got to try the uh, newspaper clippings. But before we forget, what's um, as we end every episode, Paco, what should the audience do? Uh, They should go fuck themselves. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see you guys next week. Bye.